Good morning, everyone. Oh, there's faces that snuck in at the back when I wasn't paying attention. Good morning. It's good to have you here. Um, it's always weird when you sit at the front because you can't tell what's going on behind you. And I was like, it's, people feel a little subdued, but then you stand up here and everyone's smiling. So maybe I was wrong. Um, yeah, welcome. If you're watching at home, um, thank you for joining us online. We appreciate uh, you participating with us. Um, what I want to do this morning, I want to start just, just a little bit differently, maybe. Let me move this because I feel like I'm being blocked. <laughs> uh, I want to start just a little bit differently. I want to begin by looking at just a couple of principles of prayer um, and then doing a little bit of a recap of where we've come so far in this series before we jump into today's passage. Um, because I, I think there's still some foundational things that we want to look at and make sure we're exploring and understanding together. So I, wanna, I want to begin by three or, giving three or four sort of prayer principles that we need to make sure we have in mind, I think are very important uh, for where we're trying to grow, uh, go and grow as a church. Um, so some of these will be up on the screen. There's one that isn't because it's, it's an added extra. Um, <clears throat> so the first one that I want to talk about this morning, we grow in prayer by praying. Okay, there is this idea out there that if I can just read enough books and listen to enough sermons that I'm going to become this awesome prayer. So number one that I want to have situated in our mind this morning, we grow in prayer by praying. So if you're looking at your life and saying, I want to learn how to pray better, I want to learn how to pray longer, I want to become more effective, pray, right? <laughs> and we're going to keep giving you lots of opportunities as a church to join with us. But this is take opportunities as friends, as family, as business partners to pray together. So we're going to grow in prayer by praying. Second thing I want us to have in mind, we grow in prayer by exploring other ways to pray. Um, so here's the deal. We get bored with prayer and we get in what we like to call prayer ruts. So you turn up on a Tuesday for prayer time and you pray the same way you have for 40 years. You get on your knees by your bed at nighttime and you just kind of say the same prayer and the same pattern that you've said every time we sit down for grace and we say, bless this food to our bodies in Jesus' name. And we get in these kind of ruts. And what tends to happen is as, as people, we, we uh, take the patterns that we've learned. Humans are creatures of habit, so we like to find something that works for us and just kind of do it. But there are numerous ways to pray, from writing them, to speaking them, to out loud, to prayer walking, to historical prayers that you can read, to everyone praying out loud at once, to sitting in silence, contemplating someone in God's presence. There's so many different ways that we can pray. And what happens is we learn one or two ways, and then we use those one or two ways, and then all of a sudden they get dry, and we get stale and we're wondering, why is my prayer not as exciting as that person's? Why is my time with Jesus so stale and stagnant? And usually it's because there are other things that we've got to learn, other patterns and other practices that we've got to learn to be able to re-engage our prayer life and our prayer time. Um, and so we're just at the beginning of this journey, but we're going to be looking at different ways coming up that we can pray different creative expressions of prayer, some things that might be uncomfortable for some of us because we want to try and engage God in different ways that allow us to experience him afresh and revive and revitalize how we understand what prayer is and how we engage it in the community. Number three, we grow in prayer by praying with others. And there's two parts to this. 
Um, so this can be historical prayers. So you buy a book that has like Puritan prayers. You buy liturgy that has like all these crafted prayers written out. And we sit with these people who, who are experts at prayer and eloquent and come from a time in history where their vocabulary was richer. And as we pray those prayers, we learn different ways, uh, different language, vocabulary that we can use. We pray scripture. You grab Psalms and you start praying through the Psalms. You learn this different way of praying. How many of you pray in precatory psalms where you're asking God to smite people? Hopefully not, (laughs) very often. Um, But I mean, you pick up psalms and you start reading and all of a sudden you're encountering this language and this way of praying that's so foreign to what we've sanitized within the church. Um, And then praying with other people. You know, there are people here who when you pray, you listen to them pray and you think, I wish I could pray more like that person. Uh, My prayers don't sound like that. So first of all, let me say this. Your prayers are your prayers and it's about your intimacy with Jesus. And so you get alone with the Lord and you pray and it doesn't matter if you sound like some rich orator or whether you sound like like a baby that's just babbling. It doesn't matter. This is your prayer and intimacy with Jesus. However, if you want to grow in prayer and you see someone or hear someone and you like the way they pray, go up to that person and say, can we meet and start praying together? Where do you go to pray? Because I want to be there praying with you. What do you use when you pray? Because I want to learn to pray like that. So if you want to grow in prayer, start getting with the people who pray in a way that's impactful and powerful. Um, and I, I've had this habit my, through, through my Christian life. I would always say to people, I read the Bible, I read books on prayer, and then I read books about people who read the Bible and pray. Missionary biographies, right? The biographies of the great men and women of faith who stood on scripture and who pray like crazy. And I would just read and, and kind of absorb their prayer life. And there would always be this moment in their testimonies, whether you're looking at Hudson Taylor or Reese Howells or um, James Fraser, there's always these moments where they're in a room and someone would be praying and they'd be like, oh my goodness, like this person really knew the Lord. And I walk in the room and they were lying face down on the ground and they were just praying for hours. And these people would say, so I made it my purpose to be around them as much as I could when they prayed because I wanted it to rub off on me. Um, And so when we're looking at what's it look like to be a praying church, uh, it means these things. We've got to be finding the people, the ministries in our city that are engaged in prayer and partnering with them because there are people who are gifted at this. There are ministries that, that, that focus on helping cultivate prayer. And as we get around them, it will change the way we see prayer, the way we engage prayer, the way we grow in prayer. Um, the last one that I deliberately didn't put up on the screen, um, I have a conviction that the best way to know the heart of someone else is to be with them in prayer. So for me, if I want to know your heart, I'm attentive to how you relate to God in prayer. Not to put pressure on you when we sit down together. But, but equally, when you're with me and you hear me pray, like you're getting a glimpse into my intimacy with Jesus. As I sit with you and pray, I'm getting a glimpse into your theology, into how you view your relationship with the Father, into how you understand what he's gifted you to walk in. Um, I see your fears, your hesitations, blind spots. You see all of that in prayer. So one of the best ways that we get to grow together is in prayer together as you're exposing your inner life before the creator God in someone else's presence. Um, and so, so this for me is just a beautiful part of as we grow in community, um, I value what I hear 
uh, when you're being honest with God in prayer. And I think that is one of the ways that praying with people becomes so important because you're getting an inner glimpse. You, you know, you can fake, fake it in prayer. You can sit in a room and be aware of what everyone else is listening to. And you can try and make your prayer sound good so that you look good to everybody. Usually that's a little bit obvious. (laughs) Um, And there's lots of things we do in our spirituality where we try and show that we've got the right Bible knowledge, we've got the right theology, there's lots, we we serve the right way, we say the right things, we dress the right way. There are all these things we do in our faith that, that we can kind of put on the act for people around about us. But when it comes to your heart alone in the presence of God, it exposes something that's really important. So part of us growing in prayer as a community is learning to expose our heart before God together so that we can see what God is doing inside of us, so that we can see the intimacy that's growing, so that we can hear the yearnings that he's putting on each other's hearts, Um, and so that we can act on those things as we look at what is God trying to do to shape our church as it moves forward. So that was a couple of just freebies at the start that that I was just thinking about in in preparation for this week. And I was like, I think these things are important um, to revisit because it's easy to assume that we all understand this stuff. Um, And and lots of times these things are glossed over. So I just want to make sure we're all walking forward in the same framework. So so that was part one. Part two, I just want to take a moment and recap where we've been in in the the passages that we've looked at. Um, Because we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, and, and what I hope to do is, as we get toward the end of this series, we'll actually type up a sheet of paper that has all of the passages and all the prayers that we're asking you to pray over our church. But, but just before we launch into today, let's remind ourselves what we're asking us to pray over our church, over the church in Portland, over the, the church in, in the world. So number one, we, we started in Romans chapter 15, and the prayer was that we would be united, one heart and one mind, as we walk forward in Christ. And um, that pray that we would be full of joy, peace, and hope, or we could say, pray that we're supernaturally filled with joy, peace, and hope, that those things would mark our community. Um, as we jumped into 1 Corinthians, um, this prayer that we would see with grace lenses, that our default as we walk in the world would be to see the situations and the people with the grace that God wants to pour over them. Um, this was an amazing prayer for us to be enriched in every way that God would give us and make us aware of the fullness of the blessing that, that, is, that is upon us, that we wouldn't lack any spiritual gifts that he wants to give us. And so we're praying, God, if there's things lacking, pour them out on our people or bring people in that will fill what's lacking in our church. And that prayer finished with this amazing declaration that God is faithful to keep us firm to the end so we get to praise him for that. Don't know why I'm using paper. I never use paper. I've got it right here. <laughs> um, number seven, pray. This, this was last week as we look at Ephesians 1. Pray that we would know God deeply. And how, how did that come about? The spirit of wisdom and revelation inside of us, revealing the secret things of God and revealing his heart to us. And then asking God to enlighten us, to, to give us this knowledge in these three areas, the hope to which he's called us, the riches of the inheritance that we're looking ahead to, and the greatness of his power that available to us. So with those precursor points I was giving, you know, pray 
We, we learn to pray by praying. So we're going to grow in prayer as a church as we pray these things. And the second one, we grow by exploring other ways to pray. So for some of you, this version of praying scripture and this content is new. And we, we grow by praying with others. So in this, we are learning to pray with Paul and learning to allow his heart, his vision, his vocabulary to impact the way that we pray. And then the last one that I'd thrown in for free, you know, I said, you get a glimpse into someone's heart. So in this, in, in these prayers, we're getting a glimpse into the heart of Paul and his desire for the church, his, his vision for how God impacts the world. Um, and, and, and so we're going to look more today at Paul's heart and, and what it looks like to join with him as we pray for the world. So we've covered a lot of ground. It may not feel like it, but, but over, over the, the last few weeks, that's a lot of material to fuel the way that we pray for our church. And I, I look at those, what, nine points, and I think if those things were true in our church, watch out world. Um, God's going to do some amazing things, and he is. So let's, let's look today at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. So this is the second of the prayers that Paul prays in Ephesians. L- little tidbit of knowledge as a freebie. The book of Ephesians, six chapters of glorious content for us, and Greek is only eight sentences. Paul is masterful at these run-on sentences that he just adds an and, so that, in order that, and so that and just runs these sentences out. so he's only got eight sentences one of them says little hey one of them at his end is like goodbye and then six sentences basically every chapter is a sentence and so these two of the sentences of the six major sentences are prayers so fairly significant I just think that's that's interesting so let's look at, at this sentence that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 um, and ask what does this mean for how we pray for our church so this is Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer, right? If this was true of my life, if this was true of your life, if this was true of our church, think of the transformation that would happen. Uh, James chapter 4, you have not because you ask not. Like this is a vision for what the Christian life can look like and we don't have it in its fullness because we're not asking God to make this true in our life. So before I, I look at the first prayer point, I just want to address something very, very quickly. At the start of the prayer, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So, so there's, there's two pieces here. First of all, for this reason, he actually started this sentence at the beginning of chapter three, and he kind of digresses for 13 verses before he remembers his point. 
let's be nicer to him before he continues his point having decided there was something important that we needed to know in between. Um, So when he's talking about for this reason, he is referring back to everything chapters one, two, and three of Ephesians. So Ephesians as a book is talking about what is the church and what is our relationship to Christ. Uh, The whole purpose of Ephesians is to help us understand that we're the body of Christ and he is our head and and this vision of the church. In chapters one, two, and three, what's he covering up to this point that he says for this reason? So beginning of chapter one, he's praying the amazing thing that we talked about last week. You know, we were chosen before the foundation of the world in him. We were purchased by the blood of Christ. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit, who's this deposit guaranteeing all of these good things are to come. He prays the amazing prayer that we would know God deeply that would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that would be enlightened to understand what God has done in our life. Then he jumps into chapter two and in chapter two, he's talking about the fact that we were dead in sin. We've been rescued from death. We've been made alive in Christ. But not just that, we have been seated with him in the heavenly realm. So somehow mystically right now, through the work of the spirit in our life, we are united with Jesus and seated with him in this place of rulership at the right hand of the father, which is just amazing. And then he goes on to explain that the whole purpose of telling you all this, we died to the law, which means Jews and Gentiles, the law doesn't apply to us anymore, fulfilled in Jesus. So now Jews and Gentiles come together in him as one body made united. Um, And then he's going to go on and and kind of digress at the beginning of chapter 3 to explain that he was given this unique insight into how God brings the Jews and Gentiles together as one body. So he said, for all of that reason, culminating in the fact that God has overcome this massive barrier, for this reason, I'm going to kneel before the Father. The other precursor, lots of precursors today. The other precursor to this, we have to remember If you were a Jew and you're living under the law, God has given them some very clear instructions about what it looks like to live as a Jewish person. So the law was supposed to set them apart from every other nation that existed at that time. So what were some of the rules for Jews? You had to be distinct from everyone else. Don't eat what they eat. Don't follow the practices that they practice. Don't even associate with people that are worshiping God separate from you. Don't intermingle in marriage. Stay distinct, stay pure. And he gives some very clear instructions about what purity looks like. He sets up the whole sacrificial system because here's the law and you're, you're not gonna be able to keep it. So there's a sacrificial system to pour grace over you, to allow you to be in God's kingdom and, and in his presence. But there's some rules. Uh, the Gentiles can't come into the temple. Some people can only come partway into the temple. The priests can go further into the temple. The high priest once a year can get right into the presence of God. But everything was a bit division. Men could be in this area. Women could be in this area. Gentiles had to stay here. If you don't fulfill the law of Israel and somehow you're out of purity, you can't come in the temple. You can't even be in the presence of God's people. You have to go outside the camp and live separate to everyone else. So it's all about division. And you've got these Jewish people, I I imagine with the tabernacle, even with the temple, I imagine them camped around the tabernacle. I imagine them watching as someone who's broken one of God's laws brings a little lamb and they're kind of walking with their little lamb down through the middle of the camp and everyone's watching them with their downcast face, the little bleating, as they walk through the middle. And then you see them go up to the tabernacle. You know what's about to happen to this cute little bouncy lamb. Um, and it gets chopped up and slaughtered and burnt. Now, remember, this isn't like normal barbecue. This is burnt. You know what it's like when you burn meat? 
black smoke and stink. Like, when God talks about the aroma, the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, it's not what I would determine a pleasing aroma. But just imagine the cloud of smoke coming up in the middle. Like, so these people are living every day with the awareness of the grossness, the smell, the blackness, the death associated with sin. And that's within Israel. So now imagine what they're thinking about the Gentile people that are out there who worship a different God. Some of them are sacrificing kids to false gods. They have a different view of sexual morality. They have a different way of interacting as families. And the Jews are like trying to keep it right within their own culture. So those people out there, they're so far from God that we have to stay away from them because we don't want what they have to rub off on us and make us unclean, right? So there's this massive division Paul is explaining in chapters 1, 2, and 3, God has overcome this division. So not just Jews are dead to the law so that you don't have to keep it and Christ has fulfilled it on your behalf, but those people out there. Now, do the contextual thing. For us as a church in, in this part of America, who are the, those people out there that don't fit in the people of God? God is saying those people out there, Jesus has made a way for them to come and be united in one body. Pretty crazy, right? For this reason, I fall on my knees before the Father. For this reason, the breaking of barriers, the overcoming every sin obstacle, the taking two disparate groups of people that could never be together in God's presence and making the one body under Christ. Like, think about that in our context, who those two groups would be that he would be bringing together to make one in the church. For this reason, I kneel, a posture of humility. In Jewish culture, they usually would pray standing up. If they're talking about bowing, usually it's them praying and they would rock back and forward. But he's saying, this, this isn't that. This is bowing on my knees as you do before the king. This is a posture of humility in response to the work that God has done. For this reason, we, we, we kneel before God in humility. God the Father, from whom every family, every tribe, every people group has found its existence. And he's pulling them all together. So we kneel before him in awe of his reconciling ability, in awe of his radical grace that's poured out into this world through the church. It's amazing. So now we can get to the, the prayer content for today. Are we all right? <laughs> um, so with that in mind, as he gets to this point, that it, like we are, we're down on our knees this is what he would encourage us to pray this morning. Pray for spirit-empowered inner strength. You could say pray for supernatural inner strength, but I know that word can have some weird connotations for some of us. So let's just go with spirit-empowered inner strength. I talked last week about Paul playing with these four words for power and, and really emphasizing his point that we want the power of the power of his power at work. Um, and we want to know that and be enlightened in that. Well, he's doing a similar thing here. He's playing with some of these same words that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. So a couple of observations. First of all, he's playing with these words for power. 
like a continuation of what he prayed in chapter one. Secondly, his glorious riches. See the connection back to the last prayer as well, that we would understand the glorious riches of his inheritance. Um, so again, he's, he's tying this into what he said before. It's all a united whole. But he has God's glorious riches, this abundance, this supernatural ability, omnipresence, omnipower, uh, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, all of these qualities of God, the abundance, he created everything, he's over it, he can change the world with one word from his mouth, that power, those riches, out of that, we're asking him to strengthen his inside. So, so just quantifiably, I think he's got enough of it to like give me some strength in here, right? You get that? Um, so we have to pray for this uh, spirit-empowered inner strength. You know, I don't think in the church, in the Western church, um, we don't give enough emphasis to our inner being. We don't pay enough attention to inner life. What has happened, we see it with the law, God gave this law to help mediate the relationship with God, and people turned it into a list of do's and don'ts that determined who was in and out. We've done a similar thing in the church where we focused on the externals. Are you reading your Bible? Are you giving? Are you attending? Are you serving? Are you saying nice things to people? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you praying enough? And we've turned the whole spiritual journey into this external pursuit of our relationship with God, and we judge one another based on what is external. And the reason we do that is it can make us feel really good about ourselves. Um, but he's focused here that we would be experiencing this power poured out in our inner being. The, the word is literally inner man, like our inner human. And, and when I think about it, you know, the world round about us is much more aware of their inner life than we are. You have people that, like popular psychology, your inner child We've got to care for our inner child. You know, that's part of the language. You have people pursuing um, Buddhism because Buddhism promises the pursuit of inner peace. Um, we, we're encouraging people in, in counseling and psychology, the whole practice of mindfulness. Are you aware of the relationship between your external world, your body, and what's going on inside? Like the world roundabout is actually does a better job of being attentive to inner life than we've been teaching people in the church. Um, we need to be really attentive to what is going on inside of our being. So, this means on a day-to-day -day basis, are you aware as you're walking through life, and, and, and these are different for different people, are you aware of what you're thinking and how your thought process is motivating how you respond to the world around about you? You know, you walk out, you see someone, you're, you're out for a walk, you see someone on the other side of the street, they're wearing some dark clothes, their hood's up, you're a little hesitant, they look a little scary, you make a judgment that they're probably dangerous, so you walk to the other side of the street. So your thought process dictated your behavior and you do it without even thinking. And we allow um, advertisements to tell us that the thing that we have in our house, our dishwasher, is unsatisfactory. Our life will be much easier and much better if we have a better one. So let's buy the newest model because it has a screen on the front so you can actually check your email while you're doing the dishes. And all of a sudden we're dissatisfied and our thought process, which goes from satisfaction with what we have to dissatisfaction, now we're out there 
spending time on Amazon looking through dishwashers to buy a new dishwasher that we don't need to buy because we're not aware of the fact that our inner life is affecting our outward actions. And sometimes it's our feelings. How do you feel in the moment? Your sadness and how it affects the way you interact with other people. Your tiredness, your loneliness. Um, your pride, your arrogance, how these things affect other people. Um, and for some of us, it's, it's our gut level intuition. I just know that I know about this person and because I know that I know, this is how I'm gonna interact with them. And we allow our inner life to dictate the way our outer life is acting. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be allowing the spirit of God in us to be the dictator of how our life is lived. And he's gonna ex explain this a little bit more, but I want to invite us this week to be attentive to your inner life. Like, as you're going through the week, what's making you happy? What's making you sad? And how does that affect the way that you live? As you're seeing things on the news, what response do you have to news headlines? Um, as you look back on this last week, you've got President Trump and coronavirus and, and the Supreme Court justice nomination, and there's a whole bunch of emotion that goes around that, but are you aware of how your inner perception, positive or negative, is impacting your attitude as you interact with people around about you? And is the attitude and the action you're having inside the attitude and action that the Spirit wants you to have? Or are you working in habituated flesh practices that are dictating what you're doing that you then label as Christian behavior? Uh, at some point down the line, I, I want to do a whole thing on this because uh, it's the way we are habituated in our flesh and we don't realize through our upbringing, through our Christian heritage, through the part of the world, through the race that we're part of, all of those things give us lenses that cause us to look at the world and react in a particular way. Are we aware what that is? So the prayer is that we will be strengthened with power in our inner being. So he, Paul wants us to understand that there is this unlimited supply of power that God can work inside of us that can change the way we interact with the world around about us. It is possible to act in this world not out of habit and reaction but out of being led by the voice of the spirit moving us in the world around about us is that the dominant way that you move in the world is it the dominant way you make decisions are your decisions based on what is the spirit saying and how do i respond or are you reacting now for some of us i'm using the word react for some of us it's passive so it's the opposite. I actually don't do anything in the world and I sit back and I just let everything in the world kind of affect me and I'm just swept back and forward as if I'm in the ocean just being swept around by the world and things around about because I'm too scared to act. And sometimes being strengthened by power in the inner person is the spirit giving you the ability to lay down that anchor, to stand firm and walk forward definitively in response to what the spirit wants us to do. So the question is, in your business practices, in your family life, in your scrolling on Facebook, in your Netflix watching, in your driving down the road, in the way you relate to other people, in your political opinions, in your theology, is that stuff being led by you and your past? Or is it being led by the Spirit as He works inside of us? One more thing to say about this so that, so that I can move on. Um, the context of this passage, you've got to remember, he's saying we want to be strengthened with power in the inner man. Why? Because he's talking about this division that has been reconciled. 
Jews and Gentiles, opposing people groups with no interrelation that kind of hate one another, have been brought together now in the church. So you've got two different backgrounds, two different theological systems, two different philosophies. Now they've encountered Jesus. They're bringing those things together. And he's, this whole book is about how the church relates to one another so that they can impact the world. So he's saying, in order for you to live the way the church is intended to live in relationship with one another, to do it, you need supernatural empowerment from God because you're unable to live in harmony with <laughs> In many ways, that's it's heartbreaking. He's writing to the church and saying, I want you guys to live together under Jesus, so we're going to pray for a supernatural infilling of the Spirit to overwrite your base desire. Um, and so as you're looking at other people in this church, you know people in, in the church or in the, the church in the past. You know people that you've struggled with, that you've had issues with. You know Christian leaders that you look at what they post and internally you struggle with what they say. You look at other churches in the community and how they practice their faith and you have a visceral reaction to it. You know those people because when you think about them, and you remember a situation, you're driving down the road having an imaginary conversation with them of all the things that you wish you'd said. Or as someone else starts talking about them and saying something good that's happening in their life, you find yourself resisting it and wishing that it wouldn't happen. Um, or as someone talks about them and raises a question, you feel your heart rate accelerate just at the mention of their name. In those situations, it is impossible for us to walk in unity and harmony with the Lord because our brokenness is the thing that's leading the way in that conversation. So what Paul is asking is that we would be attentive to that. And in those moments where you see the division that exists in the church, where you see people whose lifestyle and theology and way of engaging Christ is different from yours, that your priority would be God Fill me with a supernatural infilling of your spirit. I need your power so that I can then walk with this person in unity. We need him to overcome these issues. He gives us the so that, so we'd be strengthened with power in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. You know, this language we use most often in salvation. You know, I asked Christ to come into my heart. And, and that's great. That, that, that's awesome. Please, if you don't know Jesus, ask Christ to come into your heart because it's going to change your experience of this world. It's going to change uh, the, the, the way that you get to minister, the purpose that you have. But in this passage, he's writing to the church. So he's saying, strengthened with power in the inner being so Christ will dwell in your heart. He's not saying this is the salvation moment because these are already believers. So what does it mean for Christ to dwell in your heart through faith? Um, he, Paul has numerous Greek words that he could use for this, this dwell idea. There's several used throughout the New Testament. But what he's really emphasizing with this word is the idea of like permanence. And in many ways, the, the language that I like that displains it is, is settling down. So there, there's a word for dwelling that is, is like, you know, if, if you're going to go stay in a hotel and you kind of go in and you, you kind of dwell there for a season and then you move on. It's a little bit nomadic where you go to one place, you reside, and then you move on. This is like you're establishing your home. This is him coming inside of you and getting settled and getting comfortable and, and, and finding joy in inhabiting your inner life. 
Um, so, so what does that mean? At the end of the day, if Christ is dwelling in your heart, then he is the life that's going to be lived through you. So in your inner life, what's happening so often right now, the way we interact with the world, the way we interact with one another, the way we pursue our faith, the way we pursue our business is us trying our best to take the biblical principles and then live them out in the world around about us. This image is Christ dwelling inside of you so that his life is the one that is bursting out of your life. So as you look at the way you're living in this season, what is it that's bursting out of your life? Is it the life of Christ bursting out of you? Or for me, is it the life of Scott that's bursting out in impatience towards my kids? Is it the life of Scott that causes me to go to sleep for a couple of hours because I'm stressed out and don't want to deal with it? So I'll just have an extra nap. Um, or is it the life of Christ that is being lived through me? Um, and you've got all those amazing Bible passages that kind of go in the background of this. You know, John 14, 23, where, um, where John is writing, and he's saying, you know, if you abide in me and you obey my words, my Father and I will come and make our home inside with you, inside of you. And um, that beautiful passage, like this was the promise, not that salvation means that he lives in us, but that sanctification is the progressive process of him taking over more of our inner life that there would be less resistance inside to the life of Christ and more freedom for him to be able to live through us. Christ dwelling in our hearts. I love the Trinitarian nature of this whole prayer. What's he doing? I'm praying to the Father that out of his glorious riches, he'd give us power through the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in us. It's just the beautiful Trinitarian peace, Father, Son, and Spirit interacting and changing what's going on in the inside of our being. It's the imagery of John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can't bear much fruit. If you're not abiding in me, we're going to chop you off. We're going to burn you in the fire. What's the difference between a branch on the vine and a branch off the vine? One of them's dead. My hands went the wrong way. A branch on the vine and a branch off the vine. This one's dead. Why? Because it's separated from the life of Christ. But the one that bears fruit, it's a branch attached to the vine and the vine is sucking the nourishment up. And it's the vine's nourishment coming through your life that produces fruit. This is what it means for Christ to dwell in your heart that your nourishment, that the source of all your action is his life coming through you as you get yourself out of the way to allow him to come. And how do you get yourself out of the way? It's attentive to your inner life. In this moment, are your eyes fixed on the Lord or fixed on yourself? When you're in a conversation with someone and you're struggling, are your eyes fixed on the Lord or are they fixed on something else? When you're worried about finances, are your eyes fixed on the Lord or are they fixed on something else? And this is not like one season in your life versus a different season of your life. This is every moment. Like every second of every day, we have a decision to choose to fix our eyes on self or fix them on him. And it's an attentiveness to our inner life. Like I'm feeling a resistance right now. I'm feeling anxiety right now. What's causing anxiety? Oh, we're trying to find a house. It's stressful trying to figure out the right house, the right place, the money, all of that stuff. And I'm getting anxious. Well, that's Scott living with my eyes fixed on a house. What's it look like to reorient and say, I don't want to be fixed on the things of the world, Jesus. I want to be fixed on you. And what does scripture say? Overflowing riches, every spiritual blessing, you will do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. Like we don't have because we're not asking. Let me reorient so that your life is the one coming through me and not my life. 
pouring through me. 2 Corinthians 4.16, um, Paul talking, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. This, this contrast between the outer shell that we live in, the outer world and all its materials that we get so focused on, and the inner self that is being transformed. So Paul has experienced suffering, persecution, worry, all of these things. And he's saying, yeah, all this outward stuff is happening. It's horrible. But internally, I'm growing. I'm experiencing intimacy. And so, so here's the question that goes with this as you look at your life. It doesn't matter how old you are. We've all got a length of life that we've lived. The goal of our Christianity is as we live, we look more and more like Jesus. So as you're aging, and your outer shell is wasting away, is your inner life being renewed? So as you look back on your life at your impatience, you were impatient then, are you more patient now? Or are you still walking in the same things that you walked back then? Are you becoming more loving? Or are you becoming more opinionated? Are you considering others better than yourself? Or are you walking in self-sacrificial humility towards someone else? Um, are you becoming grumpier as you age? Or are you becoming more filled with joy? Um, because the outer shell is wasting away. And at the end of the day, we're going to be swept up in this moment with Jesus where we see him face to face. Sin is going to disappear. I mean, Scripture describes it in terms of being given this glorified body. What's inside us? What's staying? I want my inner life to look so like Jesus in that moment that there's not a whole lot has to be shed. But we tend to not pay enough attention inside. And so we grow up getting more opinionated. We get more impatient. We get grumpier with people. We deal with the same lust issues we always did because we're not taking the time to look inside ask the Spirit to empower us and release us from those things. We're not working to get the resistances out of the way so that his life can flow through us. And as a result, only a fraction of his glory is seen through us when he could have more. Um, and in this whole image, Christ dwelling in your heart, the, the empowerment of the Spirit, he's, he's talking individually, yes, but he's talking about the church, that together we would house the presence of the Spirit, that together we would host the presence of Christ. It's about hospitality. How hospitable is your heart to Christ? How much work are you doing with him to get the bad out of the way so that he has the fullness of, of, of your life to work with? Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting on. Second point. <laughs> These, these are quicker, I promise. <laughs> uh, the second prayer, pray that we would grasp the limitless dimensions of his love. Um, it's in this prayer, it says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and then to know this love. So this is a prayer that we would grasp the limitless, the limitedless, Sorry, that's limitless. There's an extra ED in there for fun. That we would grasp the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. Um, and we all know when this happens, we're changed and we're transformed. So the word rooted and established is drawn on uh, two common images. So rooted is agricultural. And we know all these great scriptures that you would be like a tree, a tree planted 
and rooted by a stream that bears fruit in its season. Um, so, so this idea of being deeply rooted in this love and established is an architectural term for good foundations. It's the same word that when he's talking about there's a house built in the sand and there's a house built on the rock. Which one are you? This is the same word being established, being built upon the love of Christ. And, and he's talking about uh, perfect tense, so past action, present, and ongoing result. So we were rooted, we were established, but this ongoing work of us being deepened, roots go deeper, foundations need to be solid. And what's the foundation? It's in love. Agape, agape, whatever way you like to say over here. Or if you're going back into Hebrew, chesed, his, his covenant faithfulness, his abundant loyalty to his people is the love that we've to be wrapped up inside. And again, it's, he's praying that we would be rooted and established, but that we would have this power, the power that he's just talked about, the spirit working inside of us, rooting and deepening us. But what's the power for? That we would understand the, the, the depth of this love, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep this love is that's working inside of us. And when, when Paul is, is saying this, at the end of the day, I mean, he's talking about unlimited dimensions. It's fun. There's all sorts of allegories and pictures that you can use, you know, how wide, how high, how long and deep. He's talking about the shape of the cross. There, there's all of that stuff. At the end of the day, what he's saying is, is everything. Unlimited is what he's saying. It's good. Technically, it's called merism, where you use parts of something to describe the whole. But, but when you take a moment, you just think through this. What is the width of the love of God? It's the ability to love both Jews and Gentiles. It's the ability for God to love those who are his people. And then Romans 5, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. The width of his love is all people, men and women, every race, every orientation, every political leaning, every period of time in history, like the breadth of his love. What's the length? It's the time from, from, from the beginning of Adam and Eve all the way through till Jesus returns and beyond. The, the magnitude and the length of his infinite love. What's the, the height of his love? Different people would explain this different ways. In my mind, I like to think of this as the sin issue. There is no obstacle so great that his love can't get over it. There is no obstacle in your life that is so great that his love can't get over it. And deep, it goes to the deepest, darkest places of our life. This is the magnitude of the love that he's asking us to understand. But, but he goes on to say that this is a love that surpasses knowledge. It's an infinite love that we cannot understand because it surpasses knowledge. So how do we get it? He strengthens us with power through his spirit in our inner man so that Christ, who grasps the infinite love of the Father, can have it living in and through our life. It's the spirit of wisdom and revelation at work in us, revealing the depths of this love. And we know that if we have this love, we know if we understand the magnitude of his love for us, that it changes everything about our orientation. You find yourself sinning because of loneliness. Well, if you grasp the magnitude of his love, you understand that you're not alone. We sin against people because we live in fear that they're going to take advantage of us. 
But if you live secure in the fatherhood of God, that we're his children, that he died to purchase, then we don't need to react to the people around about us because his supply of love is enough to satisfy us so that we can overflow with it to the people around about us. What would this church look like? What would your life look like if you grasped how wide and high and long and deep his love was? And if that was the thing that rooted you and grounded you as you walked with one another and out into the world. As he's talking about this in this part of the passage, it's kind of ambiguous if he's talking about the vertical type of love to the Father or if he's talking about love to one another. And, and we know from the greatest commandment that it's always both. Um, but in this letter, so much of what he's talking about, I mean, we're grasping God's love, but when he says being rooted and established in love, it's more likely in that situation that he's talking about our love for one another, that we would be rooted and established in deep love for one another in the church, for one another outside of our church, the Christians around the world, and together grasping how limitless his love is that, that's poured out for us. I want to to answer this question. What is love? What is love? Love is to seek the highest good of the one loved. Love is to seek the highest good of the one loved. And I think we get this wrong. Often this involves self-sacrificial service on behalf of another. But what does it mean to be rooted and grounded in love? What does it mean to, to grasp the magnitude of his love for us? It's that he seeks the highest good of the one he loves, and he will self-sacrifice to get there. So as you look in your life and you think about people that you struggle with, maybe you think of relational breaches, maybe you think of difficulties that you face, as you think of things this week that have made you feel icky inside, how do you rate with this definition of love? Were you seeking the highest good of the one that you're trying to love, or were you operating out of desire for what's best for self? Um, and, and here's the caveat with this, is when it comes to loving others, we're not the ones that determine what love looks like. You want to know how to love someone well, you ask them, how do I love you well? And we look at what scripture says about how we love someone well. But so often we look at someone, we determine what love looks like, and then we bulldoze right over the top of them and do something that's really unloving. So what does the Bible say love looks like? But love will always seek the highest good of the one loved, most often at cost to self. The third prayer request is kind of the summary of everything that we've said so far, this prayer that we would be filled with the fullness of God. When I think about this, I think about in the beginning where God is all that exists and he fills the expanse of everything that the universe was birthed into. I think of the Garden of Eden, where God is there with Adam and Eve, filling the garden with his presence. I think about the, temp- the, the tabernacle, where God's glory comes down and resides there. I think about Mount Sinai, where God's glory is in this big cloud that Moses walks into. I think about the temple in all of its glory. I think about Jesus housing the presence of God. I think about that expanding into the church so that every person in all of history that's walked with Jesus is carrying his presence. That magnitude of fullness is what he's asking that we would be filled with, individually and together. So try and in your head just get a picture of what the fullness of God looks like 
and then ask God to put that in your teeny weeny itsy bitsy frail human being. Um, Pretty incredible that that's what he asks. Adam Clark is this old um, British Methodist, um, and I love how he describes this moment, his little observation. Among all the great sayings in this prayer, this is the greatest. To be filled with God is a great thing. To be filled with the fullness of God is still greater. But to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the sense and confounds the understanding. This is what he's asking that we would be full of. As we, as we wrap up, I, here's um, just a little insight into this passage. We worship a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present. So in this prayer, he's asking that we would be strengthened with this supernatural power inside. That's the omnipotence of God at work in us. That we'd know his love that surpasses understanding. That's the omniscience of God at work in us. And that we'd be filled with all the fullness of God, every space that he inhabits, the omnipresence of God inside of us. So this is him literally saying we want every aspect of God and all that is beyond us to inhabit us um, and again, like that's there. This is, this is the, the good thing and the sad thing. If that's there, think what that can do in your life. Now think of how powerful your own resistance is that you can stand in the way of that. That when God wants to love someone through you, that your bitterness can be like a door on the love that he wants to pour through. But thanks to God that he can break through those things. All it takes from us is to say, God, fill me. God, right now, I'm aware of an inner resistance to your will. Help me move aside. Help me smile at that person rather than criticize them. Help me to pray a blessing over them rather than thinking of their downfall. Help me to speak truth and love to them rather than staying silent. Or the harder one for me, help me to shut my mouth rather than saying what I really want to say. Um, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence working through us. Um, and as the, the prayer finishes with this climactic moment, so you know, everything that he said in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the precursor to what he's going to say in 4, 5, and 6 about how we live in this world and, and how we live in the church. But he finishes with this amazing prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to what? His power that works within us. Not his power that doesn't work. <laughs> his power that works in us. To him be the glory. So I want you to take a moment. What are the things in your life? What are the impossible things in your life right now when it comes to looking like Jesus? What are the besetting sins that you've struggled with all through your life? What are the relational breaches that exist that you've wondered if God can ever reconcile? Who are the people that you've been praying God would bring into his kingdom that seem resistant? What is your hope for yourself, for the vision that he's given you in this world? I want you to hold that for a second inside and then hear this word. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. He is able not to do what you're asking and imagining, but to go beyond what you ask and imagine. So here's how I'd like to, to finish this time today. We're going to pray again, um, but I want to kind of take us through just a couple of steps in prayer around this topic. So you can think about your own life, you can think about your family, and I'd love you to think about this church 
um, and what God's doing here. But what is, that, that's the normal homework, so you can look over that. But what is it that we want God to do in our midst? What are the impossible things that as you look at Alliance Bible Church? What seems impossible for God to do here that you want to see him do? So I want to take like one minute, and I want you just to hold that impossible prayer request before the Lord. Um, your life or in this church's life. Now I want you to pick one person sitting next to you. Um, if you don't have someone sitting next to you and you're not comfortable being next to someone, you can just continue praying on your own. But uh, I want you to tell someone next to you something that you want to see God do in your faith and then in the church. So yeah, take a moment and, and share with someone next to you. And then let's take a, a moment or two together corporately just to pray these things over our church. So again, same request. So just one at a time out loud as you feel comfortable. Um, in light of what's on your heart and in light of this prayer, what does God want to do here? What are we going to ask him to do through, in and through this congregation? God, I want to start um, just as I think about us grasping the limitless dimensions of your love. I want this to be a place where every person who walks in the door um, encounters who you are as the loving Father, encounters the price that you paid through Jesus, encounters the power that you pour out through the Spirit, and to, to walk out of these doors secure in their identity with you and inviting others into that. So go to every person that comes through these doors secure in their relationship with you.